0: Hello and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm wet and warm tra la -la, tra la -la -la, la la la
1: That's just saying that LA is kinda anti anti housing. Not that it's pro housing yet. And so I think the challenge that we're trying to do with our organizations is how do you get how do you solidify that pro housing sound majority?
0: Hi, I'm Bryce Merriman, and you're listening to the Homeland Lab podcast. Sometimes an interview comes together through serendipity. While in Los Angeles, a friend shared an in-depth article about the history of LA's housing stock called Forbidden Los Angeles, how Los Angeles banned some of its most popular buildings by the author Mark Balianatos one of the co-founders and planning director of Abundant Housing LA and a member of the urban change think tank LA+. Quickly, I reached out to Mark to see if he'd be able to get together on short notice, which is how I found myself sitting on a bench in one of Los Angeles's Union Station's courtyards, talking with Mark while the business of the station played out in the background. While the story Mark lays out here is about Los Angeles, its broad strokes have played out in cities across the United States, limiting the amount of housing stock that's available for those who have now fallen into homelessness. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm going to read something that you wrote, and I think listeners to the podcast will think it's about homelessness, but it's actually not, and I want you to talk about what it's about. Much of the time, they are so familiar that they fade into the background, in other circumstances, we notice and celebrate them as a crucial part of Los Angeles, but paradoxically, we also ban them.
1: Yes, those are actually, uh, essentially a lot of our best buildings in Los Angeles, or many cities, um, are celebrated uh, but banned in the sense that you couldn't construct them today, and um, primarily because of... We require too much parking or the setbacks or um, other zoning things, density restrictions. In Los Angeles, it means that a lot of the, what I'm talking about is things like bungalow courts, which are, you know, small small um, dwellings clustered around a central courtyard that were super popular in the 1920s and 30s and became kind of a part of the vernacular architecture of L.A. Um, other similar types of courtyard apartments that were also, you know, you know, Spanish revival and Moorish style. They're really beautiful. They have a nice little oasis in the middle. Same thing. They got killed, killed or deformed by parking requirements. And starting in the 30s, um, sort of mid-sized brick apartment buildings that used to be pop up here and there, but also, you know, got got down zoned or couldn't, couldn't couldn't do it because of the parking. And the, the irony is that people love those types of buildings. They try to preserve them. When a developer comes to a neighborhood and, like, proposes a mixed-use, whatever, mid-rise thing, people are like, why don't you build bungalow cords or this low-rise kind of stuff. So why not? Well, one of the reasons is it's <laughs> illegal to do that. Um, other, you know, There's other reasons with whatever, how the development finance works and people's lifestyles and stuff. I'm not saying we should be building 1920s buildings. In 2020, we want, you, know, you want better seismic safety and fire safety and uh, more installation, that kind of stuff. But it's this, this is an interesting thing that always struck me that you, that we had essentially eliminated, systematically eliminated, each kind of popular form of low-rise apartment building that became popular in Southern California. We found a way to ban it. And as a result, um, for the past 30 or 40 years, you've had to, you know, assemble parcels, do large, fairly, you know, fairly large, fairly large blocky apartment buildings. Then people say, well, those are ugly. Well, shit, it's only the only thing, excuse me. But those are the only things we let people build, and then people reject those and want to downzone so you can only do single-family houses or something like that. And so the serious consequences of this kind of, or sort of interesting history, is a loss of, you know, a loss of diverse, low-rise, fairly dense, walkable, you know, relatively affordable neighborhoods in Los Angeles, um, which is, you know cascades out to everything from increased homelessness to rent burdens to people being forced to leave the city if they're young or if they're low income. Um, so it's both a kind of detective story on urban design and planning, but also it's, it's really consequential today to you and think about the housing crisis.
0: And I th- and the parallels that, that you draw, I mean, it's so easy to interchange the phenomenon of homelessness with this loss of housing, and, and it seems like these two things are really interwoven together. Um I wonder if, if you could Just
1: on that point actually, you know, yeah. there's there's a there's a parallel story that could be told about um, about residential hotels, you know, about um, informal housing, you know about motels and things like that. So essentially, you know, for some of the same reasons and also for exclusionary you know, intentionally exclusionary reasons, many of the low low cost, maybe somewhat some standard but at least, you know, Homes for, mm-hmm. for very mm-hmm. poor people have also been banned in many cities, mm-hmm. um, and so that's that, in some ways, it's an even more tragic story, um, a more political story, uh, than the more general idea that we downzoned and banned like a lot of just you know general, generic apartments. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, I wanted I wanted you to talk about some of those those reasons why the system made these places illegal, or you call them forbidden LA, um, and. Whether those dynamics are still at play in the civic conversations going on in, in this city?
1: Well, you know, it's so I, an anecdote I used when I was um, preparing to do this, I did, this came out of a walk I led in, in northeast Los Angeles. And I found an interesting quote when I was looking up the history of bungalow courts, which again were, you know, there were tens of, th- maybe 40,000 of them built in the 1920s alone. Um, you could, you know, rent or buy them empty or awesome. Often they were rented, um, furnished, as yeah. like you know, for for tourists coming in and stuff like that. The the famous um, architect Charles Green, the Green and Green brothers, who built these some amazing, very large, yeah. fantastic bungalows, bungalow single-family homes in the early 20th century in Southern California. He reviewed one of the early bungalow courts. The first first one apparently was built in Pasadena, like around 1910, but 1915 he reviewed. Some bungalow courts, and he's like, "These are speculative. They're, they're, they're all uniform, like because there's ten identical ones in a courtyard, mm-hmm. and they're too dense because you're packing people in versus having just gracious yards and you know 4, five thousand square foot mansions, whatever that he was designing, he and his brother, and it struck me that that those three critiques, the the new homes were too standardized, too dense, and being built for profit rather than some other motive are refrains that you've we've heard here for a hundred years and we hear in many cities. You know, the thing back then, back then the rules allowed people to do that anyway, you know. Yeah. You, could, you could buy a piece of land, you start, just, you build a single family house, you build a duplex, you build a bungalow court, little small apartment because that was what the zoning allowed and there, you don't need to go through political process, You saw a variance, so basically it's like everything was automatic, you know. Right. And then over time, for a variety of reasons, um, we started putting in more restrictions and more complicated process, and the key restrictions, key zoning changes that I found that killed a lot of these popular housing types. Probably the most significant was minimum parking standards that were introduced in Los Angeles in 1934, 35, but then expanded after World War II. Then also uh, setbacks. So in the mid 30s, in the 1930s, the Federal Housing Administration sort of wanted a crusade against attached homes because they thought it led to you know, whatever slum conditions or like you know, weird nefarious things happening in the back yards that were visible from the streets. And mm. So for the new, new you know, newer growing cities they wanted that they were gonna be guaranteeing loans for, they wanted to ensure that, they're, that they were investing or guaranteeing kind of detached products. So uh, they wanted side yards, backyards, front yards well, and passed right, passing ordinance right on their here. recommendations. Yeah, yeah. And so that restricted the amount of land you could use. And so rather than having, again, like a bungalow court where you're hugging the, the outline of the property and the open space is shared in the middle, you now had to do side yards and backyard. And sort of, and you also had to put parking somewhere, and so eventually it, it limited what you could build. And then density restrictions are the third, where it used to be, you know, so those were kind of indirect density restrictions. You just kind of tended to limit the number of units you could put on a property
0: but they weren't they weren't framed that way it was it was a consequence of right
1: yeah the parking was put in because
0: LA kind of co-evolved with the car and so
1: in the 20s like they're like you know like like 700,000 yeah, by the end of the 20s like 700,000 cars were registered here some planners started to get worried they're like sometimes there's a mid-sized apartment building they have pictures of, like a mid-sized apartment building with no parking and then on the street next to it there would be like a line of 20 cars because some of the people have their cars and they're like they're going to take over the public domain, and this was before freeways, and they are worried about what they called the promiscuous mixing of short-term driving and stopping and shopping and going on to, like, through traffic. And so one of their, their suggestions was require off-street parking, because then you free up the street for people moving fast through. Got it. And so they're, like, they put those in. Not, and again, no one knew what was, you know, it was pretty new in the planning field. No one knew what the consequences would really be. Um, the yard, I described it, you know, it was the idea that you want... People have open space and light and they just went too far and mm-hmm. weren't thoughtful about how to do that. Obviously, the interior courier was an awesome way to do that, but it wasn't what they thought was the best practice. And then, But then, density restrictions came in more, I think, from public pressure eventually. After World War II, some homeowner groups started forming, people started being worried about either apartment buildings being in single-family neighborhoods, just I don't know what, the wrong type of people essentially, okay. peer exclusion, social exclusion. Um, there's often a racist element to that when you have Latino immigrants or African-Americans trying to move into certain neighborhoods is one way of restricting who could come in. And um, uh, later in the 70s and stuff, you started to have a, you know ecology movement come in, talk about population growth being a problem. And so you had a rising power among groups opposed to growth that sort of upended the, the Traditional use politics in L.A., which have been very pro-developer, just because it's kind of built around real estate in a real estate boom, and so you started to have not just indirect restrictions through these spatial rules, but also had direct limits on the number of dwelling units you could have per square foot or acreage of the property, and so those three things together um, ended up killing not only the lovely, the old lovely um, multifamily properties from the 20s and 30s, but also the dingbats, which were what we call, um, we call dingbats, it's like our, it our low-rise wood frame apartment buildings of the late 50s, early 60s. They tended to be, they put the maximum number of units on a lot based on the parking, and to deal with that, they actually, the parking was like, was tucked under the front of the building, so it kind of mm-hmm. cantilevered out in front or the mm-hmm. side of the building. It was this very, you know, sort of cheap construction, right. but then they put this, often very, very cool um, stucco facades, like with, like, you know, atomic starbursts or like, you know, a coat of arms, like it's some, you know, Tudor thing or whatever.
0: Very California. Very, yeah, was, like, totally <laughs> awesome. But
1: then they increased the parking requirements in the 60s and, and ended that type of building. And so we started moving to multi-live, you know, big, big buildings, big apartment buildings with parking underneath, probably underneath in the center.
0: Um so now your, your costs per unit are going up to construct because you're having to dig down. And,
1: and also you can't buy the standard 50 by 100 lot. You have to like assemble lots
0: or buy larger lots on boulevards and stuff like that. So, so talk about, a, you, you had some a nice discussion about who was building these units, both in the past and who's building them as we, as we lean forward into the future. Talk, talk a little bit about that piece of the equation.
1: Well, the general point is that the, more, the harder you make it to build something, the richer you have to be to do it, and therefore you cut out, you start cutting out um, individual homeowners out of the equation, small developers, and especially this Dingbat, this Dingbat the apartment boom of the '60s, '50s, and '60s in L.A. It was often like um, sort of upper middle class people or like dentists or accountants who had some money and they wanted to, they could get a better tax deal. Putting some of that money in real estate right. versus keeping it all in the bank or whatever, and so they would just like buy a piece of land, right. like a you know a lot that was zoned for multifamily, and then hire like a developer and architect and just put up one really quick. Like nine months later, nine months after they bought the property, there'd be people living there mm. and start getting rent and stuff because it was just a standardized
0: you know right. thing. Lo- local owner investing right. in the community,
1: and it like wasn't like a paradise. Is you know you had probably there was um, in many parts of the city they, they're. There'll be, like, race, you know, racial restrictions and who sure. they rent to and stuff like that. And these buildings, you know, no- nowadays we're retrofitting them for earthquakes because they're what they call soft story where they, you know, because of the cantilever you have, like, in earthquakes here, you have the top clocks down into that carport area and stuff. Mm-hmm. But we have a rule now. You have to, you know, in the next 10 years, you have to retrofit them all. Um, but the point was that there were they provide a lot of housing. They could be built quickly. They could, yeah, you could have owner owner investors build them so it wasn't big, big corporate investors or, you know, finance, financial institutions doing it. And it was, people have written about it as a kind of democratic form of architecture because it was like, when you moved to LA, 1961 or whatever, whether you're trying to break down the film industry or do what the hell you're trying to do, like you could just find an apartment, a single unit or, you know, single bedroom, two bedroom and live there until you figure out what you're going to do permanently. And it was like an entry point for people. And we've really lost that today. So as I mentioned, we have, we have a, a city in a region that were historically magnets for people wanting to reinvent themselves and to move here, now becoming a place where even outflow um, of, of especially people who are young and can't afford to live here or are low income, and the same is true of California in general. Uh, and the places people are leaving for, you know, they're not, you know, they're they're moving to places where sit that, states that are like that, like, are anti-immigrant or that, you know, are trying to stop brown and black people from voting and stuff like that. So it's not like they're, people are choosing to go to places that have treated them worse as individuals. It's just that they're priced out in the places that, you know, we are getting your ass kicked by places that aren't as progressive in other ways. And so it's a, it's a paradox and an irony that the West Coast blue states, which are otherwise trying to probably do better than many and try to have a fair society, like are not
0: allowing enough homes to be built, yeah. and and they're hurting people that way. Well, and, and that seems to get, that dynamic seems to get at the question of regulation, too. Because a lot of those communities where people are going towards now are resistant to regulation as an, as an ideology. I mean, how do you think about regulation being in a blue state, in a blue city, but recognizing the, the impact that regulation has in slowing housing production. How are you thinking about it these days? One of our,
1: one of our approaches when we were meeting with a bunch of friends and colleagues to found LA Plus was that we wanted to like, that was like precisely the issue, like how do you have better rules to allow good things to happen in the city? And one way we were thinking about it is like, you want good rules in an easy process because in some ways it's a process that kills kills things right like we're not trying to overturn you know fire regulations in the building code or you know have have sustainable buildings or whatever um, but you want to have kind of a high you want to have kind of a high level vision that you want to have more homes of all types mm-hmm. you want to have sustainable buildings you want to have diverse types of housing you set some rules to do that but then you make it easier for people and easier for people to do it of all of all types so we want everyone to be a developer. Like now, you know, now it's easier in the last year to have a second home in your backyard in California. So how do you have more families doing that? How do we um, reduce the cost and make more land available for nonprofit developers to build affordable housing or permanent supportive housing? How do you again bring the kind of small market rate developer back into the picture? How do you have people do co-ops and building groups and all that kind of, you know, innovative stuff that is allowed to go on in Europe and we can't? That are act together to do here and still big build big projects too there be a lot of homes right and so we thought about that slogan of like you know, good rules simple processes one one of my co-founders also talked about generative rules so what are rules what well g- generative is like taken from like almost like from from mathematics and from like um, from computer programming the idea that there's there's a simple kind of equation or program that if you if you set it loose, it kind of spins out to a lot more complexity and a lot more interesting Mm -hmm. things to happen. Mm -hmm. And so in the context of land use, it's like, um, I'll give a couple examples in a second, but it's the idea that we have rules that then allow people to take it and use it different ways and do good things Mm -hmm. versus rules Mm -hmm. that just put a clamp on stuff. Um, And so for an example, uh, like 15 years ago, Los Angeles, which has been, as I mentioned, historically restricting how we do housing, they actually did a really cool thing. They did something called the Adaptive Reuse Ordinance. Because in downtown L.A., parts of downtown L.A. were like a ghost town. We had all these beautiful um, early 20th century office buildings in the Broadway area that were mainly empty just because the banks and everything had moved to bigger sky sky rises and stuff like that. So they had a rule that you could convert those to residential use Without having to add any parking, just if there's no parking in the building, that's great. If there's a little bit of parking, that's great. And you could also have some flexibility in the fire code, like they allowed out outside um, fire escapes versus interior, you know, things if there was just no space for it. Mm-hmm. And just that simple change unlocked like 9,000 units of housing. Wow! And it yeah. kind of breathed life back into downtown LA because people started actually living there again in this area, and that allowed businesses to open there, and that attracted more people, and it's kind of, you know, there's been this renaissance in downtown LA. Now there's some complications that. Related to uh, subject to your important subject to your podcast, which is that it, that historic area is also very close to Skid Row, which is the largest Skid Row in the country, um, where there is similar old buildings, but they were older, you know, residential um, hotels or shelters and things like that. And there's always a dynamic and conflict about who new buildings are for sure. and stuff like that. Yep. But if you're thinking about a, a idea that you want people to actually live. And be able to like, shop and stuff in the downtown of your city it was an amazing success and it just by allowing a little more flexibility in the rules it it, it turned wasted space into actually you know people's homes right. and um, you know hundreds of millions of dollars investments all kinds of you know, good stuff to it from it.
0: so so in your vision uh, of the future la uh, with abundant housing with a lot of different types of housing choices where do poor people live
1: well, I mean, we, we've been very explicit in supporting more homes of all types. And so the, the question is how to um, unleash a building boom at the market level without just having all multiple people in your city, right? Which is right. kind of the uh, challenge for any high-demand city. And so the approach we've taken, well, first, first we say we supported... Um, there have been two good measures passed recently in Los Angeles dealing with homelessness, two important ones. One, a city measure, measure HHH, or Proposition HH, I forget, raised over a billion dollars. Essentially, the residents tax themselves through property taxes to spend a billion dollars on permanent supportive housing. Twenty percent of that could be for affordable housing, but the majority would be just for permanent supportive units. And we were very strong in support of that. We went out on canvas with other supporters. So, um, we've tried to put our money where our mouth is that we, you know, we want more public investment in social housing. so you know affordable housing, you know, and, and subsidies and helping longer people buy homes and from supportive housing, all that kind of great stuff. Now we have though opposed a recent proposal for a linkage fee on market rate development to do the same thing to pay, to, go, to pay for more standard affordable. Uh, affordable and for, for people who aren't familiar with what a linkage fee is, he's it's a tax it at the on level. yeah, it's a per square, it's a tax on new development both commercial and residential, of a per square per square foot, like twelve dollars per square foot for residential, five for commercial, and that money goes to the city. The, the city then uses that money and leverages other funding sources to sub, to subsidize nonprofit developers to build dedicated affordable housing, and so the way we put it is we will, you know. We'll cheer and support every single affordable home that gets built by that kind of source of money, right? If it runs into local opposition or something, we'll turn out to support it. But we think that society—if it's a social priority to fund homes for low-income residents—it should be. It should tax society to do that, because when you just tax developers, in quotes, which is also been the residents of the new homes, you end up getting less, and you have a cascading, like shortage throughout the whole market and you have wealthier people who might buy a new condo now they're going to go buy an existing you know single family home or something like that or rent existing apartment people in those apartments if they want to stay they're going to go to a subsector in the market where you have working class families or something like that and just like when you have a shortage rich people win right, right because it right. and so we think it's short-sighted to try to fund affordable housing by making it more expensive to build market rates
0: when I, would, I would imagine from your perspective it's not only those new affordable housing units that are that are a benefit it's any new unit is a benefit and in thinking about taxes you want to tax something that is bad and, right it, it,
1: yeah and so and so when you do like a parcel tax or property tax you're taxing everyone like I'm a homeowner in the city of Los Angeles I haven't gotten mac together yet to like build a second unit on or anything like that so I'm I'm a worthless you know I'm not contributing any, any new homes to the city. Why should I avoid being taxed when someone who, you know, buys a piece of land, builds 10 units, small lot subdivision, whatever, or builds me over, you know, how many homes is having to pay? Just, it's, it's counter, counterproductive. Um, you now, part of the reason why is in California, we have, a, since Prop 13, which was a tax, anti-tax measure in the 1970s, it, ta- it caps property taxes very low, and so, um, it also requires a two-thirds vote of the public to impose any tax, so, like, these, these, taxes I mentioned from the city, it took, you know, 70% of the people voted for it Wow! Okay. because if you had 51% of people voting for it, it would have failed. And so what cities can bypass that and do a, a study showing that some act, some development activity causes a problem and they can do a fee to solve that problem. So by saying that new market rate housing creates like a higher demand for service welcome low income service workers, and they need homes. And so the, the act of building the market rate homes creates the affordable housing problem. So therefore we'll do a fee on them to, to pay for it. So that's one of the reasons they're doing it. It's kind of a workaround of our bad property tax system. but it's But it's still, it's still counter, counterproductive. Right. Um, and then there's another challenging issue about how you balance all those types of housing and you know, types of people to keep a diverse city is we have rent control in the in city of L.A., a kind of type 2 rent control where it's rent stabilization where as long as you stay in the unit, it's a capped raise for every year. But when you leave, it's called decontrol. The landlord can charge whatever they market bears for the new person arriving at. So eventually, the eventually homes become more expensive. Mm-hmm. So there's like six hundred fifty thousand apartments built pre nineteen seventy eight that are rent stabilized in okay. LA, and that's the most important source of more, of less costly housing because we don't have much public housing. We don't have that many uh, social social units. But it's
0: obviously not enough. You, you it's not enough, right? The and there's is. no building in, in
1: like. It's no, no more being done. So, but then the, the challenge is like, what do you do? Like, say there's a ten-unit rent-stabilized apartment. Someone wants to come demo it, build twenty market rate, right? Like, what? It, what is the calculation there? Now, the city has rules where you have to
0: replace someone for one. So, um, one rent-stabilized for one rent-stabilized, or one.
1: So you'd have to replace all the rent-stabilized that you demolish with needed affordable for fifty-five years, yeah. and then you can. But. A question is like, well, the zoning, even that is usually unfeasible because, you know, you might be in an area zone for 12 homes, you have an old apartment that you can build 10, so you're not going to go knock down 10 necessarily to put up 12 market rates, 10, because then 10 of those are going to have to be affordable. You have two market rates, so it's not going to pay for them. Yeah. So one big question is like, to what extent is our best solution just to try to preserve what affordable housing we have now um, versus say, let's let's just, Let's just unleash things and try to build enough that we can eventually uh, get to a more sane position. And obviously, the solution has to be somewhere in the middle because you can't just go knock down every old building because then you know we have we have like a mil- more than a million people in LA who are very low or low income.
0: It seems like it seems like the government regulations is one piece of this this conundrum. The other piece of it is inviting or perhaps it is, and you can push back on me, inviting as many builders as possible into the conversation. And it seems like, for a variety of reasons, the city has excluded a, a set of builders who may, who may have been wanting to, the, the dentist that you talked about. So how do we get them back into the, that building marketplace?
1: It's a great point, because a lot of the rules we impose, assume, assume the developer is A, um building fairly large projects and B like has funding that they can that they can hold they can own a they can hold a property for a number of years while they're going through planning. They, so they will they can, capitalize enough to right. do that, yeah. And and so the two examples of this would be something like these fees, which you know, if you're building a luxury and it's already X dollars per square feet, X you know, whatever, throw on another, you know, like $1,200 for a 1,000-foot unit, well, they can probably do that, you know. But if you're building at the margins, the margins, even in parts of the city where the market isn't as strong or you're, you're, you know, you're getting a hard money loan from someone and just trying to do it quick to be able to make some money back, it doesn't work. And also, there's often in a, if you're doing affordable, affordable units or you're getting some kind of government benefit, there's often a requirement you're using, you're paying a prevailing wage, and that... Apparently, this is. You know, I'm not a developer. This that works better if you're if you're already if you're building like a concrete and steel tower, you're already hiring union waiver you know, companies or whatever. But if you're doing low-rise wood frame construction somewhere in a submarket that's not that wealthy, and you're building 10 units or something like that, suddenly you're like, you know, that's just never been part of your your costs. And so if you add it to to them, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. And so if, if we're talking about you know affordable or permanent supportive housing, 100 percent projects. They have been required for a long time by funding programs to do that, but the problem is the costs are creeping up. So you have $400,000 $400, per unit for a affordable unit in the city of LA. Wow! Like $800,000 in San Francisco is just totally ridiculous, like there's land costs. and So even while we're being generous and like putting more money into the system, I mean, we don't have enough, but we're starting to do at right, the right, level, right. putting more money. That isn't necessarily going far. I mean, the good news is, like, where we have some local money, we leverage, you leverage tax credits and other programs, and so you're not, like, paying for the entire unit right. with local money. But still, it's like... How, so I do think both... You know, how do you have rules that work... that are flexible enough to work for different scales and different nonprofit, profit for-profit, whatever? Um, and another thing is, like, how do you improve construction and make it more innovative? This is, you know, there's been research that shows that most industries in American society, you know, you get more productive every year by a couple percent, whatever. Construction, residential construction, construction is like at 1968 levels. Mm -hmm. So the number of output per worker is at 1968 Mm -hmm. levels. And so, you know, that's another thing. It's like, how do you have building codes? How do you have contests? How do you have challenges? Partnerships that can get to better construction, so you can build more per dollar, is another big challenge. And I think that actually, ironically, or maybe very appropriately, in the markets serving um, homeless residents, there seems to be more action in that than in most markets because it's partly, I mean, partly for good reasons. It's like, how do we get the most out the door as quick as we right. can because it's an emergency. There's a there's a
0: real incentive right. for so tiny homes
1: for you know. Modular um, you know, containers, whatever you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, mobile units, all this kind of stuff. Some may be kind of hey, they're homeless, you know, they can't complain about the type. You know, I always, you know, I, I think it's mostly the former because people who have a mission to go into the business of providing housing for the homeless are like compassionate and you know want to make a difference. But it may just be that there's a sense that you can experiment more because. A, it's an emergency, and B, you know, it's a,
0: they're not pushed back. Or well, and also, there's a, there's a space that's clearly crying out for innovation, yeah. and you're going to make some missteps, but you hope that you're getting to a yeah. better place.
1: And it, so, ideally, that works, and then that can can go up, spill throughout the rest of the industry, mm. because it is a problem. Even if we had better mm. rules, even if you had, you know, up, even if you up-zone and make process simpler and more diverse types allowed everywhere, you still have construction cost issues, and land price issues, and the expectations of profit of the investors, and so you still wouldn't get, still wouldn't go back to really affordable homes, you'd just be like more, more rational priced homes, so it would be good to to push that envelope.
0: So where do you think LA is in this conversation politically? Well, it's a good, it's a good
1: question, because for a long time, there's both a kind of spoken and unspoken assumption that, that Los Angeles was dominated by so slow-growth politics, by homeowners groups who become very savvy figuring out how to gum up the system, and you know, and the elected officials knew that they were the people who turned out to vote in local elections. For example, in the late 80s, there was a ballot initiative here that downzoned our commercial corridors in half, so it cut the flora ratio, ratio basically everywhere on... On this gen, you know general business streets from three to one point five, and that was kind of like a slow growth revolt um, led by homeowners of West West LA and the San Fernando Valley. And then this spring we had a we had an initiative that would have put a freeze essentially on changing the zoning of pieces of land. We were getting a lot of our new housing from changing the zoning from like a parking only to commercial that allowed residential or whatever. Is that like spot zoning? Spot oh, zoning. Okay, on a parcel. Yeah. Because because so many of our plans were out of date and because of this down zoning that happened, people were like, I need to shift to get to be able to do a medium sized or big building. And that law and that abundant housing, you know, we, we fought that. There's a big coalition groups that fought it, and it lost seventy to thirty. So in a generation oh, wow. we had a okay. flip in the probably the two kind of most important slow growth votes, um, to one passing over one lane, one failing over one lane.
0: Do you, do you have a sense of whether it was an evolution in opinions or whether it was just a new generation of people coming into the, the voting roles? You know, I forget if there's pulling
1: on the, um, the age of the voters, but in many of the more wealthy neighborhoods where you might expect it to have passed and failed, so probably some of both. Also, it's really extreme, so if it has been as a valley, you know, it was overreaching, a sure. more targeted one would have passed. But that that that's just that's just saying that LA is kind of anti anti housing not that it's pro housing yet. And so I think the challenge that we're trying to do with our organizations is how do you get how do you solidify that pro housing silent majority and actually get people speaking out so that elected officials, planners, etc. know that people are open to more homes of all types and to experimentation and to some densification in the right places. But I still think that we default back to this old politics where it's like from the developer side you come in with more than more units maybe because you know you're going to be negotiating getting rid of them and then so it's a long it, it's a long like almost like symbolic like ritual of different public meetings and negotiations and votes and stuff like that and in the end you get probably what you expect at the beginning mm-hmm. but maybe you've wasted a couple of years in which they've been Pang on the land, or you know, sometimes the market cycle changes and you just have to kill the project. So the the long process here, where you get a lawsuit from some phony environmental group that stalls it for another two years or whatever. So that terrible system is still the default. You know, you're a developer, again, you're gonna hire a land use attorney or consultants like run you through that process. The city council member whose whose district it is is gonna be like, the kingmaker who like brings both sides together and negotiates some minor change to it you know that you could have done in the beginning mm-hmm. so we want to give want the MV groups want to like turn more people out so that there's a sense that the planners decision makers can understand that they're people who actually want more housing and then they can make better decisions and we also that's kind of the short-term goal and the long-term goal is to change the rules so again there's like if we think that building should be more energy efficient then like set that in the code if we think that you know, we want to use public land for affordable housing. That's like, let's identify land and, and funding sources for it. And then let's just go out and let, you know, let a million homes bloom, right? Let, let the dentists and the nonprofit corporation and the homeless service providers and the foreign investors and everyone, like, oh, just like, you know, build different types of housing and let there be enough homes for
0: everyone in L.A. Fantastic. Um, you said uh, affordable housing on public lands. What kind of public lands are you looking at?
1: Well, th- that's another. That's a, sort of a corollary to the to the billion dollar, billion dollars for a permit affordable housing here. Is the city start identifying what they call public opportunity sites, which are public underutilized public parcels, and the idea being that if you pair public you know money from this new source with Free, like a you know, land lease or something like that, then you get rid of the land costs, you can do it quicker. Um, and so this is, you know, tends to be things like truck parking lots or like, you know, there's like one that's like a unused, like closed, like animal shelter or, you know, whatever. Things that just the city owns that they don't know what to do with. The problem is that that gets politicized just as much as anything else. So, you know, every. So it's not as automatic as like the city saying, yeah, here's a hundred parcels, let's just start an uh, RFP process and start getting affordable permanent supported housing people out there using them. Every site becomes a political battle. There's one in Boyle Heights that the council person has been blocking, even though he's for downtown, he's pro development, but they're, they're never stopped it. And so actually the city has a draft permanent supported housing ordinance. It's actually quite cool because it it means you can build more homes without going through an environmental review. Which is a key trigger here that lets that, that people slow things down. Uh, and what it does, the smart way it does it, it says, like, we know that almost any multifamily project in LA is going to have to, like, like, there might be some archaeological issues if you're digging. There might be, you know, there's some, um, if you're in a contaminated site, you have to hire someone to check for, you know, for past contamination, whatever. Build that into the requirements and then just, like, automatically approve it. So, where we before we'd say, let's have a politicized process where neighbors can come and yell at it you know, and, and install it and sue it, instead just like set good design requirements up front and then construction requirements and then just like let it be done. Because this city, The voters have spoken, 70% of them want to fund affordable, you know, more permanent affordable housing for the homeless. So don't make each one a political battle, otherwise you're just undermining on a petty case-by-case basis the actual will, the big picture will of, of, a, of a city. So we think that's a great model, not just for permanent supported housing, but actually for all housing. That's mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Like if you want there to like if you're going to contaminate sites, require like studies, you know, whatever, and mitigation, and do and so that people know you're doing that, up, know they have to do that up front, They can budget for it. They can decide, you know, whatever, build that into their build that into their cost calculations and stuff. Versus halfway through, like, oh, you got to do this new thing, or oh, you tend to cut it by two stories, oh, add more affordable units, or add more parking, or whatever. So it's a surprise, and it's like. And that's our think that's part of our vision. And one would hope both for the human benefits of brings, that permit supportive housing can be kind of like a wedge of the prize and spear, you know, like let's build it because it's badly needed. And then it also shows showcases a better way to regulate housing. Um,
0: so so 15 years out, what what what's your highest aspiration oh, yeah, for where, where LA has gone?
1: I feel like I want it to be a city again that people can that people can move to and stay in and reinvent themselves. So it's kind of like a a dynamic place of possibilities, rather than a city that that people feel s- s- like if they like they're clinging to survival, mm-hmm. and so that if they ever have to move. They're going to have to leave the region, which I think is for too many people is the reality today, because that becomes a city of fear rather than a city of hope, and it also becomes a place that loses its capacity for like reinvention and for creativity and stuff. Because again, for very good reasons, people are then become very skeptical of new things, new development, of changes. You know, a bike lane is going to gentrify the neighborhood, and I'm going to be forced out. It's like it leads to that kind of level of of concern and fear, or, uh, you know, housing some of the homeless in my community is going to, you know, destroy my life savings, or, you know, depending on what neighborhood you're in, right? And so then you just have these, you have a, so rather than having kind of all the built-in incentives, having people oppose positive change, you have people, like, participating in it instead.
0: I think that's a beautiful vision. Uh, Thank you so much for the the time, Mark. (laughs) Thanks for the uh, the work you're doing with the podcast
1: and for um, exploring this issue.
0: Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at the sound of Y V E s.com. com